Please stand for the reading of God's word. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. This is God's word. You'd like to follow in your Bibles. Uh, we are in John chapter 7. As our nation focuses on social injustice, racism, the past evils of our nation, violence, the effects of coronavirus, and so much more. We wonder, how, how do we fix the brokenness of this world? One professor responded, what else is there for us to do but to do away with this world and work fiercely towards another? I think he captures the sentiments of many of us. The only hope is to do away with what we have and, and restart. But if we could actually do that, would we end up in any different position in, in a few centuries than we are right now? Are we more virtuous than our ancestors? Because it's our ancestors and we who have brought the world to the place that it is. And unless human nature is changed, nothing really would change, no matter how hard we work. Doesn't mean we shouldn't work for that which is good and right. But it's ultimately in human nature that has brought us to this point. Jesus is more heartbroken than any of us about the state of the world. He's so heartbroken that he, he left his throne, came down, became a man, and went to the cross to die for the sin and to offer us a new life. 
Jesus does say, yes, one day we will start all over again in his glorious kingdom when he returns. But until that day, Jesus still offers us a pathway forward in this world. Let's pray. Our Father, open everyone's heart to this passage this morning. Speak your truth through your spirit to each one of us precisely where we are living. Your word is living and active. It cuts into our lives. It does surgery so that we can become better people. May we open ourselves to your surgeon's touch this morning. In Jesus' name. So what we're going to see in the passage this morning is, first, the pathway that Jesus offers for personal fulfillment and for transformation so that we can become a blessing in this world. And then, sadly, we see that that offer is rejected by most people. So we're going to look at Jesus' pathway, his offer, and then the rejection. It opens... On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So this proclamation takes place on the last day of the feast. The feast is the feast of Succoth or we know it better as the Feast of Booze or the Feast of the Tabernacles. And it took place every year at the end of the harvest. And it was one of three, three days that the Jewish males were asked to come down and worship in Jerusalem, make sacrifices. It would last a, a week, and people would build little booths to remind them of the time that God provided for Israel when they were in the wilderness after they had escaped uh, Egypt. So th it was a celebration, a thanksgiving of God's provision. It was a time of prayer for the year ahead. And it was a remembrance of the work that God had been doing in the wilderness. And one of the features of that of this was a ceremony of water libation and what would happen is the chief priests surrounded by the other priests and musicians and worshipers would leave the temple and they would go to this pool of Siloam and the chief priest had a golden pitcher and he would dip his pitcher into the water and he'd bring it back with the procession to the temple and he'd pour that water at the foot of the altar. And that was to remind the people of how God provided water in the wilderness. The people had thirsted. They cried out to God. And God provided, when Moses struck the rock, the rock gushed with water. And so the people had plenty. Jesus stands up on the eighth day, the last day of the feast. The water libation ceremony is for the first seven days. It doesn't take place on the eighth day. And so Jesus is offering himself as that living water. Jesus is the rock that was pictured in the Old Testament 
to flow water into and through our lives. The Apostle Paul picks this theme up in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, where it reads, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the Red Sea. And we were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And they all ate the same spiritual food, the manna, and they all drank from the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. The parallel is obvious. The Israelites were thirsting. They couldn't live. Couldn't live much longer without water. But God provided through the rock. And so Jesus is saying, you who thirst, you can't live without the living water. Drink of me and you will be revitalized. Out of your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. So, are you thirsty? Because Jesus is giving this offer to those who thirst. I think we all thirst whether we want to acknowledge it or, or not. And we do see in our nation today a thirst for, for social justice, for healing, for reconciliation. We see a, a desire for righteousness, that things would be made right in this nation. We also see, have a personal thirst. We thirst to belong. We thirst to be loved. We thirst to, to, to matter in this life, to be significant. We, we, we thirst for security and peace in our lives. And so Jesus says, all who are thirsty, but where do we turn to satisfy our thirst? Jeremiah, centuries earlier, points out where people turn. He says in chapter 2, verse 13, My people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living water. And they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can't hold water. And Jeremiah is saying the natural response of people who thirst is not to turn to God, to push away God's offer of being the living water and to build their own cisterns, which they, they think will hold water from which they could drink, but the cisterns are broken. Today, if we want societal transformation we turn to broken cisterns. We think that movements or political parties or certain politicians, that if we only had these things in place, then all things would be made right. And that's been the thinking for generation after generation after generation, and all things are not made right. Yes, we need to work for social justice, for righteousness, even if we did away with systemic racism, we can't do away with personal racism that has gripped people's hearts. Broken cisterns. For our personal needs, our personal fulfillment, we thirst, but what do we turn to? We build our own cisterns whether it be out of family or our jobs, our professions, our reputations, uh, 
they will not satisfy the inner longings. We thirst for love, and so we compromise ourselves so we'll be accepted by others. We thirst for significance, so we seek it out in, in power or prestige or success. We thirst for security, so, so we build up 401Ks, so we'll never have to worry about anything, but we still worry about almost everything. We've heard story after story of those who reached the top, and when they got there, they found there was nothing there. Broken cisterns. Jesus offers himself as the living water who does satisfy and who flows through us. And that offer is to whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You see, our connection to Christ who offers the living water is not through our efforts, through our religion, through how hard we try. The connection is through believing in Jesus Christ. So what does it mean to believe in Jesus? Well, it means, first of all, to not believe in ourselves. And what do I mean by that? Well, if I stood before God and made my case for why she, he, he should accept me, if I say, well, you should accept me because I'm a pastor, and I've been, I became a, I, I, I started becoming religious in my, when I was little, and, you know, I don't murder, and I don't, I haven't stolen too many things, and compare me to other people, and I think I'm in the top 10%. And if you've noticed, you hear, I, 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 I. That's, I believe in myself. I need to realize that what I offer to Jesus is my sin. And Jesus took that sin. So that when I believe in Jesus, I'm saying to God, you should accept me, not because of me and what I've done, but because of what Jesus Christ has done for me. He's, he's taken my sin out of the way, so it isn't a barrier to you. Jesus makes this offer to those who believe. And the result of that, he announces, Whoever believes in me out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Now notice, he doesn't say whoever believes in me. He says if you're thirsty, if you believe in me, I'll quench your thirst. If you're thirsty, I'll satisfy that thirst. He doesn't say that here. He says if you're thirsty, out of your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Now, Jesus will satisfy our thirst. He said it to the woman at the well. Um, he said to her, everyone who drinks this physical water will th be thirsty again. Whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. He said it in uh, chapter pre 6. I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst again. So Jesus is the living water. He does quench our thirst. He does satisfy those core needs in our lives. He will fulfill us. But the emphasis in this passage is that the water will flow through us. 
And he, said, he spoke this of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will grip our lives, pour Christ into our lives, and we will be so filled and so satisfied that it flows out of us. See, the Christian life isn't all about putting the effort in. No matter what we feel, we're just going to do it and we're going to obey. It's about the Spirit of God transforming us in a way that we want to obey. A.J. Gordon, one of the, the founder of uh, Gordon Conwell, talked about a time that he was walking through a field and, and he saw a house and in front of the house there was a pump and there was a man pumping away. And he was furious. He couldn't believe how fast this man was pumping. And he watched him and watched him. He waited for him to stop or to tire. But the man never tired. He just pumped, 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 pumped. And so he moved further down, down toward the, that man and he saw there was no man at all. It was a wooden figure made to look like a man and his arm was hinged and it was moving the pump up and down. But in reality, he wasn't moving the pump up and down. The water coming through the pump was moving his arm up and down. It was an artesian well that flowed through moving the man and pouring water out. See, that's the Christian life, that God so fulfills us, the Spirit of God so works in us, he transforms us from the inside so that he works through our hearts and works through our hearts so that we want to obey him, we want to follow him, we want to serve him. You see, when we are totally fulfilled and satisfied, what's left is to look outside of ourselves and, and to pour our lives out for others. Uh, early in the pandemic, and I, I think to some extent today, it was very difficult to find paper towels, toilet paper, cleaning goods. I was, full, I was completely supplied with those things before the pandemic even came. So when people started looking for it, I, I didn't have to look for it. And I came across some people and, and they were looking for toilet paper. And I said, well, I have some. Follow me home. I've got some. And when I go to the store, I, I see the, pa the, the paper, I, I see the cleaning goods, so what do I do? I buy it, and I bring it to the church, so people in the church or outside the church, wherever there's a need, they might have some. You see, I'm able to look outside, I'm able to just think of giving away, not because I'm so wonderful, but because I'm, I'm already fully supplied. That's what the Christian life is about when we are so fully supplied by the truth of what Jesus Christ offers us in the gospel, we'll, it'll just flow through us to others. And we will be a blessing to the world. We, we can become like the early century churches that were turning the world upside down. They struck it in infanticide when people brought their babies out to die because uh, they weren't exactly what they wanted. It was the Christians that went out and rescued them. And the, the Colosseum and the slaughter, it was ended because of the testimony of the way a Christian died. And when people were 
fleeing the city and fleeing loved ones, leaving them to die because of the plague. It was Christians who went in and cared for them. It's the Christians that began the first hospitals. And in that first century, there was no such thing as racism. Excuse me, no, no such thing but racism. <laughs> Everyone, every clan, every race was all for themselves, completely separated, hostile to one another. And Jesus broke down the, the big hostility wall between Jews and Gentiles. And he says, in Jesus Christ, we are all one, and that's what the church became. They transformed our world. They didn't make it perfect because we still have us in nature. Not everyone becomes a Christian and lets the water flow through them, but they were making an impact. The same kind of impact Christians can make today and people who are not Christians become Christians and let the water of Christ flow through them into a thirsty world. This is an incredible offer, and Jesus was passionate about this offer. It says that he, he stood up. See, teachers taught sitting down. But he stands up, and he doesn't say. He cries out, if anyone is thirsty, come to me. He stood out among everybody, even though we read last week he told his brothers if he goes up to the feast, they want to arrest him and kill him. But he was so passionate about this message, he stood up and cried it out. And we see rejection of him. Now, there are those who heard the words we read in verse 40, 41, they heard these words. Some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is, this is the Christ. So were those who, who heard the message, those who had been witnessing miracles said, he's the prophet that Moses speaks about. That means he is a prophet on the level of Moses. And then there are those who went even further and said, no, I think he is the Christ himself. But quickly voices came in to try to drown those voices out. And then ultimately we see the religious leaders intimidating people so they wouldn't believe. The religious leaders did not have open minds. People listened to them they saw them as the authorities, but because they didn't open up their minds, a lot of people didn't open up their minds, and they closed them. We saw that in chapter 6, that hordes of people, thousands of people, gathered around Jesus because of the multitude of miracles they had seen. And then they each experienced the miracle as Jesus passed around just five loaves of bread and fed 15 to 20,000 people. It was evident. <clears throat> but we see at the beginning of this chapter, after all those miracles, we see the beginning is the religious leaders sent soldiers, sent officers out to arrest him. 
They didn't look at the evidence. In fact, you can't find one place in the scripture where the religious leaders question the authenticity of Jesus' miracles. Their response to Jesus' miracles isn't to say that they didn't happen. He's doing magic. He's tricking everyone. They're saying, he's doing this by the power of the devil. These are supernatural stuff and it's not from God, so it must be from the devil. And they weren't open to the evidence when Jesus performed the greatest miracle of raising Lazarus, bringing him back to life. The religious leaders gather together and they say, we need to get Jesus and we need to kill Lazarus. We need to do away with the evidence. They never had open minds. And so they use intimidating tactics. And I, I want to look at those because these tactics are ones that are used today. Used today to intimidate Christians to be silent and to intimidate people from considering Christ, the Christ who will satisfy their thirst. So the first is that they appeal to defeater beliefs. And it's actually people within the crowd that do this. They appealed to defeater belief. Now, what is a defeater belief? A defeater belief is a belief that is held so firmly by someone that it dispels any arguments a contrary belief could have. So basically, it defeats any belief you might have because uh, this belief just null and voids anything else. So defeater beliefs against Christianity is a belief held that says, I believe this, it's impossible to believe Christianity. Uh, Tim Keller, in his book, Reason for God, brings out a few of these de defeater beliefs one is, people believe there can't be just one true religion. There can't be one way to God. If you believe that, you can't believe Christianity because it says there's one way to God. Another one is, a good God would not allow suffering and evil. There's suffering and evil, therefore, there can't be the good God you're talking about in Christianity. Another is, a loving God couldn't send anyone to hell. Jesus taught about hell. Therefore, Christianity can't be true. Another is, science disproves Christianity. So, how can Christianity be true? Or the Bible's full of errors. So, why do you follow the Bible? You can't follow the Bible. So, these are defeater beliefs. <clears throat> the defeater belief in this passage is, Seen in verses 41 and 42. Others, well, others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David, comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? See, the defeater belief is, Jesus is from Galilee. You have to be born in Bethlehem to be the Messiah. Therefore, it's impossible for Jesus to be the Messiah. Do you agree with that? Of course, you know, 
because Matthew and Mark tell us that Jesus actually was born in Bethlehem. Jesus knew he was born in Bethlehem. At this time, he could have simply appealed to the census of Quirinius. Just check out the census. I was born in Bethlehem. So the question is, why doesn't Jesus defeat this defeater belief right then and there? And one of the reasons, perhaps, is that he, when you think about the origin of Jesus, Jesus is trying to say, what I want you to really think is, I'm from heaven. And he said that in the past. I'm from heaven. That's the origin. That's the origin that matters, which is true. But I was wondering if he doesn't defeat this defeater belief because we're all going to face defeater beliefs we can't personally answer. Should that shake our faith? See, Jesus didn't personally answer this defeater belief, but he knew the answer. There is an answer to it. He was born in Bethlehem. There are answers to every defeater belief people put against us. So I encourage us first, yeah, read books like Keller's Reason for God, others that address these defeater beliefs. But if you can't answer them, don't let that shake your faith because there's answers just like there was in this passage. At this point, the officers that the religious leaders had sent out come back and it says this, the officers came to the pre chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, why didn't you bring Jesus back? Why didn't you arrest him? The officers, an the officers answered, no one spoke like this man. That's why we didn't arrest him. This man speaks with an authority like no other. Now we need to realize these officers weren't mercenaries simply paid to be policemen. These officers were from the tribe of Levi, the priestly tribe. They were religiously trained. They knew more scripture, they knew more religion, by far than the average person. And so when they heard Jesus speak and they were filtering it through the scriptures, they were impressed they couldn't arrest him. But now the religious leaders implement more tactics to intimidate. They label them. Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? He's saying, you have been deceived. You have been manipulated. You are small-minded. You've been deceived. What fools you are. Labels. Christians are being labeled today. We're labeled as homophobic, misogynist, hypocrites. When you hear that about Christians, who would want to become a Christian if that's what you're considered in the society? Who wants to stand out as a Christian? If that's the labels we're going to be given, tactics of intimidation. 
Why should we stand out? Why should you consider Christ if you're not yet a believer? The reason is Jesus quenches your thirst. Jesus transforms you and makes you a better person. And Christians are not what they are labeled to be. And we should be bringing the message no matter what names we're called because we offer Christ. Then they marginalize them. Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. And so what he's saying is, if you want to be considered one of the elite, if you want to be considered an authority, I mean, all the authorities, the smart people, the right people, the powerful people, the people who are in the know, none of them would accept Jesus. So you're in the outcast class. You're like the crowd who don't know the law and you're actually cursed. And so there's the in crowd and then there's the out crowd. And you, who would even ask the question about Jesus, he has this authority. Uh, if you dare ask the question, you're in the out crowd. We marginalize you. What's interesting is that there is an authority who does believe in Jesus. And he actually dares to speak up in this passage. Nicodemus, who'd gone to Jesus before and who was one of them, one of the authorities, he was a member of the Sanhedrin, one of the top 70 Jewish men. He says to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? So, just as all he does is raise the question. Are we being fair? Are we being open-minded? Are we considering the evidence? And what's the response? Are you from Galilee too? Let's marginalize you. Have even raised the question to say, consider the evidence. Think it through. Let's put you in the outcast class. Here are. Are you from Galilee? Search the scripture. You'll see no prophet comes from Galilee. The fact is... Two prophets, Nahum and uh, Jonah, came from Galilee, but they're wrong. They will marginalize. They say Christians are ignorant and unintelligent. Science, science, we're on science's side, but Christians, they, they don't consider science. Pew Research study in 2009 said 50. 3%, I believe, 53% of scientists believe in God or at least a higher power. No it's, no, it's not that no scientists believe in God or Christianity. I came across one atheist writer who said, what, what bothers me most about my stance is that the number of intelligent people I know who believe in Jesus... No, they're not alone. At least that, that atheist is willing to admit it. The Pharisees won't admit it. They just try to silence you. Will we be silenced? 
What's the real reason people reject Jesus? Jesus said it earlier in the chapter, verse 7. These are going to be difficult words for people to hear. Jesus is going to sound very judgmental because he is. Because he is the judge who comes from heaven. And he says, The world hates me because I testify that its works are evil. Who wants to hear that? The reason you don't believe is because your works are evil. Because you have sin, you have a sin nature in you, and, and that just doesn't, that doesn't go with the, the prevalent thinking of the day when the idea is everybody is, is basically good. If that's the case, why are we in this situation we're in? The situation we're in seems more like everybody has a sin nature than everybody is good. And that's what Jesus is saying. Everyone has a sin nature. It leads to evil deeds. And people can't face it. I proclaim it, but people can't face it. You know, psychologists say the same thing. They, people can't face who they are. That's why they have defense mechanisms. We have defense mechanisms like denial, blaming others, reaction formation, trying to make up for, for our sins and, and what's wrong. Uh, there's a slew of defense mechanisms. Why? We need to defend ourselves against what Jesus is actually saying about us. And he says, if you acknowledge this, now you're ready for me. If you can't acknowledge your sinfulness, you will never accept me as Savior. See, to accept Jesus as Savior means I need a Savior. Why do I need a Savior? I need a Savior because I am sinful and my deeds are evil. If I can't acknowledge that, there's no reason I might accept Jesus as a good teacher, a prophet. I could accept him as maybe he's God, but I don't accept him as Savior. Jesus has outed all of us. We can hear the voices of today saying, you're basically good, you're okay, try harder. Or you can hear the voice of Jesus Christ saying, you're a sinner. The good news, I'm here to be your savior and to satisfy the thirst in your life and to transform you to become a person who can impact this world in tremendous ways. You know, I saw a piece on the news uh, a week or so ago where a protester was verbally assaulting three police officers, but her attack was especially on the one white officer. And he, he was trying to respond, and he said, well, she, as she calls him a racist, and he says, well, I'm, I'm married to a black woman, and, and I have black children. And she said, well, that doesn't matter. And by the way, I, I think you're a liar. That's not true. It's, uh, let me see a picture. I need to see a picture of your family. I don't believe this. And the other two officers are trying to intercede and say, uh, ma'am, you, you just don't know this man. You're, you're assaulting him and you don't know who he is. But she continued to rail against him. And finally, one of the black officers said, ma'am, 
The problem is sin. And the answer is Jesus. For God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son. Our Father, I pray for those who do not know you. I pray that tactics of intimidation of the voices of the culture would not make them afraid to consider Christ, would not keep them from honestly assessing the evidence of Christ, listening and reading the word of God, hearing the authority in the voice of Jesus, the love in his words, the power in them. And God, I pray for us. Let us not be intimidated so that we keep the gospel message to ourselves. For there is a thirsty world and we have the water that can quench that thirst. May we not keep it to ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.